a certain segment of the Republican Party is drawing on that fear. And they're doing it. They're very good at it. They're very, very good at it. And they're drawing on that fear that who I am and what I am and what I believe in is being taken away. And it's been being given to other folks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Dr. Kathy Joshi, an expert on the intersecting issues of race and religion in the U.S. Her book, White Christian Privilege, describes how Christianity has influenced U.S. history, embedded itself in our institutions and society, and pushed religious freedom to the wayside. Kathy, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you for having me, Ken. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. The term Christian nationalism seems to be everywhere these days. And with the looming 2024 election, I wanted to talk to you about how a militant form of Christianity has leveraged all of that faith's structural advantages in our society to promote a particular political vision for the country. I want to start, though, with the foundational argument. Uh, You make the case in your book in an extremely compelling way that the supremacy of Christianity in the U.S., actually comes at the expense of religious freedom for others. Give us some examples of that in operation, and then we'll pivot to the to the political moment we're in. Sure. Well, a couple of things. First, I think we can think about some things that we're taught way back in elementary school, in first grade and second grade, which is, you know, how this country was founded. And you know, going to public school in the United States, I learned that this country was founded for religious freedom. Well, that's part of the story, right? That's part of the story. The full story is it was founded on religious freedom for Puritans. They were really in it for themselves. They weren't in it to provide religious freedom for everyone, because otherwise some of the things that happened to Native Americans would not have happened. So the idea that Christianity is embedded in our history goes very far back. There are a couple of other instances that I can bring up. In the early 1800s, Congress passed what is known as the Civilization Act of 1819. This provided federal funds to missionaries to convert, to civilize Native Americans. Civilized meant convert, bring to Christianity, assimilate, basically lose indigenous ways, right? So your listeners might be saying, but wait a minute, we have um, freedom of religion. We're not supposed to have um, state funds going to religious activities, but we have a long and unfortunately strong history of that happening. And so much today of what is thought about in terms of separation of church and state, also uh, there's so much misunderstanding around that phrase. Um, so you know, I always take an informal poll in my classes, like where does this phrase come from? And most people think it's in our founding documents, but it's not. It was in a letter from uh, Thomas Jefferson to a congregation in, in Connecticut, to Danbury, in Danbury, Connecticut, because they were concerned that we did not have a state religion. That phrase was in that letter, and then it was lost for a while, and then it was picked up in the early 20th century in Supreme Court cases. Justices cited that letter 
and cited that phrase. And so that became part of our everyday language. But there's so much misinformation. So I'll, I will say that some of the pickle that we're in today um, as a nation is because of misinformation and not understanding real United States history. Kathy, I want to stay in history for a little bit uh, because I'm I'm a nerd, but I also think it really informs the current moment. That 1819 Act that you reference was really just one more iteration of this colonial impulse that goes back to old Europe and the laws, even Vatican laws, that said if an area did not have Christianity, it was free for the taking. You you address that a little bit as well. Yeah, you're referring to the doctrine of discovery, um, something that in the last few years has gained some traction in terms of, hey, we need to learn about this. But it's a series of papal dictates starting 1455 that said that uh, really first was aimed at conquering and taking the lands of West Africa by Portugal. But this really extended, and this really is the predecessor of, well, I should say, this provides the strong foundation for manifest destiny in the United States. The notion that Puritans came here, it was God's will, and to live out their destiny, you know, they really needed to take this land from sea to shining sea. So we can really draw a straight line from doctrine of discovery to manifest destiny, then moving towards today's American exceptionalism. This founding myth rooted in the Puritan search for religious freedom doesn't really acknowledge their inherent intolerance, right? I I mean, the Puritans were very puritanical (laughs) when it came to their religious practices. How does that inform the next 250 years of, of American history. I know that there's a lot packed into that question. What I'm getting at is, is the, the roots of Christianity in the United States weren't exactly founded in tolerance. That's right. That's right. And that's the piece that gets left out, which is so critical, right? And so if we could understand that the whole story of what happened when the Puritans came, I think that would make a big difference. But we really see how this thread of Christianity not only embedded in United States history uh, is something we really have to understand, but how Christianity's role in the construction of whiteness. Because what has happened, Ken, is that because of First Amendment, and freedom of religion, there is a sense that, oh, that combined with the fact that sometimes people, quote unquote, see religious diversity, they see synagogues, they see mosques in their communities, they see gurudwaras, which is a sick house of worship, they see Hindu temples, and the myriad of Christian churches, right? So there's a sense like, well, we have First Amendment, a freedom of religion, and it's real, it's here. That's an illusion. That's an illusion. And we have to go back to see how Christianity, what happened was, is to understand Christianity's role in the construction of whiteness, we have to understand how some historical events that we know today to be, that get categorized around race and ethnicity and understanding race and ethnicity in America really also have a lot to do with religion. But that religion piece has been hidden and we have to really shine light on it. And when we do, it makes sense to people. You subtitle your book, 
the illusion of religious equality in America. If if you'll indulge me, I'd like to ask a personal question. Growing up in the South, what was your experience with that? What was your first realization that this religious freedom we we extol so proudly wasn't quite the reality? Well, you know, it took me a while to figure that out. I grew up in Cobb County, Georgia. I am proud to be from Atlanta and proud to be from Georgia, but it was not easy. Uh, my family, looking back now, um, I feel very confident in saying my family is probably one of the first 15 Indian families to settle in Atlanta, Georgia, after immigration laws opened up in 1965. And, you know, I wasn't Black and I wasn't white. And people really didn't know what to do with me. I had in school wonderful teachers who took care of me and who cared for me, but they didn't know how to help me be proud of who I was. One of my teachers tried, Ms. Burns, my French teacher, and I did not do well in French class, but she really did um, try to get me to open up about who I was. Now, what's interesting, Ken, is I was very proud to be Indian. On the weekends, I had my community. I, you know, hang out with our youth group, you know, hang out at the temple and the cultural center. But Monday through Friday, I would have done anything to shed this brown skin. It made me different. Um, I was made fun of for the food I ate. I was made fun of for what Kids thought my religion was, and the real sad thing about it is that sometimes some of my teachers actually joined in in making fun of me. And I, it took me a long time to figure out, you know what, that shouldn't have happened. That should have never happened. So there were also times that I wasn't discriminated against, but I didn't quite have the secret passwords to fit in. And here's one example. I was in ninth grade English class and I I did not do well in English class either. I struggled very much in school at, uh, and a lot of it had to do with the bullying I faced. And I was in English class and uh, we were learning about similes and metaphors. And my teacher, and I was in an independent school by this time. I was in a private school for middle school and high school. And my teacher said, Similes, metaphors, blah, blah, blah. You know, like the story of the Good Samaritan. And I just assumed I didn't read it. Therefore, I didn't understand, you know, uh, because I didn't do well in class. I later realized, oh, that's a story from the Bible. And there was nothing wrong with her using that as an example. What was wrong was the assumption that all kids know what it is. Because as someone who did not go to Christian Sunday school, where else was I going to learn that if I wasn't taught that in school, right? And so there was the assumption that everybody knows these stories. And I that's part of what's Christian normativity, when Christianity is just so, it's in the nooks and crannies of our lives that people forget to recognize it as Christian and just come to see it as American or just come to see it as part of everyday life. I want to talk a, a bit more about how pervasive that religious hegemony of, of Christianity is in, in America, because I, I think people like me, certainly people in my orbit, just take it for granted. 
and I'm thinking about the the case you present in your book about depictions of the divine. I mean, we assume that God is some white dude with a beard floating on a cloud. And anytime that image is presented differently, it's seen as cultish. You talk about Hindu gods with their colorful clothing and multi-armed bodies, or Saraswati, the goddess of, of knowledge, or Krishna with his blue skin. I mean, that because of the just how deeply rooted our Christian impression, our modern Christian impression, I, I should clarify, of God is, those depictions seem weird. And that's your word. Right, right. And I think that, that they appear as cultish, as you said, they appear as cartoons. And what happens is they're so weird, they're seen as so outlandish. Well, hey, we can make fun of them. Oh, they can't be real. Oh, this isn't something sacred. I mean, I, you know, grew up some days fasting on Thursdays because that's the day of Saraswati, the goddess of knowledge. And my mom was like, you need all the help you can get, you know? So, um, but what does that do to a kid when you're told in your family, this is something to be revered? And then you go to school or you're in, outside in the world and it's something being made fun of. And that's difficult for a teenager, young adult, for, and child to reconcile. And it ends up resulting in some kids just saying, hey, you know, Hinduism is just a little too weird for me. It can lead people down that path. It can also lead people down the path of saying, you know what? I am tired of being made fun of. I am going to need to learn about my faith and make sure I can explain it and figure out what it is that I believe. Right. But going back to your original question, you know, what we have to really understand about each other's fates is that if it seems so different, then hopefully in your mind that can trigger, oh, well, it's something I should learn about. It seems so different because I haven't encountered it. Because if you encounter it, the more and more you encounter it, the less different and weird it seems. You're describing really hurtful and deeply rooted cultural biases, but they express themselves in the law as well. There are legal structures that enshrine these biases. Can you talk about the Ten Commandment Wars or the school prayer wars, which we're not, we've by no means figured out, but those are examples of legal structures trying to codify Christian bias. Yeah. So, gosh, we could spend the rest of the time on just one of those, right? So, you know, let's take the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, when you're part of the majority group and something is important to you, it's very easy to think, well, this kind of can apply to everybody. And so one of the examples I have in the book is from Governor Sonny Perdue uh, of Georgia, and who talked about, well, the Ten Commandments apply to everyone. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are like, no, these are just rules that civil society should follow. But when you're part of the dominant group, it's easy to see that. Part, one of the commandments is thou shall not pray to another God, right? Like, so you're telling me Ten Commandments are part of U.S. structure. And then we're also saying we're a religiously pluralistic democracy. Of course, some don't want that. You know, so we have to understand, no, it doesn't apply to everybody, but you might think that 
right? Same with prayer. And you know what the interesting thing about prayer in public schools is? So prayer was in schools, right? Because our public schools come out of the common school movement, which comes out of religious schooling in this country. And so in the 50s and 60s, when we had two Supreme Court cases, well, two big cases that took prayer out of school, the country understood that government took religion out of schools. And I would say that part of, you know, conservative Christian America kept saying for decades that government was taking religion out of schools. And it wasn't. In fact, Justice Tom Clark in the Abington v. Shemp decision in 1963 was very clear, saying that no one's education is complete without the study of religion. But we have forgotten about that. And our public schools did take religion out, unfortunately, when government was saying we needed to take prayer out of schools. And I still encounter, and for the last 25 years, I've been teaching about religion in schools with all the other topics I teach about. And I always encounter my public school teachers saying, Professor Joshi, we can't talk about religion. And I'm like, no, 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 you can. You can teach about it. You're not supposed to preach about it but you can teach about it, right? And so we really actually need to get back, Ken. We're going to have to teach about religion. I need to know about Christianity. I need to know what it's about because I'll tell you growing up, until I got to Emory University and I took a class on the life of Jesus, the only thing I knew was that I was damned and going to hell because I did not accept Christ as my Lord and personal Savior. Like, that's not okay. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. Our sponsor, Neurohacker, packs seven of the most science-backed senolytic ingredients into one formula called Qualiosenolytic, and you can take it just two days a month for fast, noticeable benefits and for a much better aging process. Senolytic ingredients are science-backed to support our body's natural elimination of zombie cells. My body and energy levels feel about 15 years younger after just a couple months of adding qualia senolytic to my diet. I love how easy it is to take. Having more physical and mental energy for my family and friends is such a win in how I show up for those I love. My productivity has doubled. I feel invigorated and enthusiastic again with the daily drive and enthusiasm to get things done. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It's also backed by a 100-day money back guarantee, so you have almost three months to try Qualia Senolytic at no financial risk and decide for yourself. If you're in your late 20s or older, adding Qualia Senolytic to your diet can play a crucial role in combating negative aging symptoms. Go to neurohacker.com slash boats for up to 50% off Qualia Senolytic, and as a listener of Burn the Boats, use code BOATS at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash boats to try Qualia Senolytic with code BOATS and start aging on your terms. Are there other countries, other societies that do it better? 
I mean, I'm a cheerleader for the U.S., but I'm always willing to to learn from others. Where can we look to get inspiration and, and guidance for how to build this pluralistic approach? You know, that's a good question. And let me say that I'm a cheerleader for the U.S. too. It's why I wrote a book like this. It's why I teach what I teach, because I believe in the founding principles of this country. You know, for me, the whole idea of creating more, you know, a more perfect union is at the center of everything that I do. And I'm very proud and I'm, I'm thankful that my parents immigrated to this country in 1971 and I came over with them as an 18 month old. I'm also very fortunate that my parents sent me back to India all the time and I'm fluent in my language and my home language. And, um, very proud to be Indian and Indian American. You know, I think there are other countries. There are some things that we could really learn from. So for example, in Canada, they have a whole federal policy on multiculturalism that affects the day-to-day in Canada in a different way than here in the United States. We do things. Um, certain holidays are recognized. Certain Topics are taught in school that are not always taught in our country. Interestingly enough, India, when I started my career about 25 years ago, I thought that India could be a very interesting place to learn about religious pluralism. In India, we have had, and in India, I will talk about India and use we, and I will talk about the United States and use we, because I consider myself to be part of both. And in India, we have federal, we have national holidays across faiths. So Christmas is a national holiday in India. And so is Diwali. And so is Holi. And so is Good Friday. Okay. Many different religions are recognized in India. And I think that that's something the United States could learn from. I will also say that currently in, in India, just like we have a problem, in the United States with white Christian nationalism, India has a problem with Hindu nationalism. I'm glad you brought that up because in terms of learning from other country, the example of, of Modi in India and Hindu nationalism is especially scary for me because it's kind of a glimpse into what America's future might be if Christian nationalism indeed co-ops a major American political party, if that political party gains the regains the White House and and retakes the Senate, I mean that's a a scary picture for me, and and I would love your thoughts on it as someone who who has one foot in in two different cultures that can inform each other. Yeah, it's not a place of study for me. I, I can't really comment on it the way I can on white Christian privilege as I'm an academic who studied that. But as a as an everyday person who who lives Christian privilege here, I also know, for example, in India, I have Hindu privilege because the United States is, um, in United States and India are our two big secular democracies. So they're actually, that's the perfect analogy to make. And my last name, uh, gives away that I'm Hindu. It also gives away what caste I am. And so I know that when I walk in, when I walk the streets in India, it's different for me than it is for those who are Muslim, for those who are Christian. 
and sick and other fates. So it is something that makes me very sad because you have, uh, how do I put this? You have sometimes more kind of in-depth and long-standing relationships between different religious communities in India that I haven't always necessarily seen in this country, but it is some of those relationships are hanging on by a thread, you know, and when those of us who talk about Hindu nationalism um, talk about it, we're immediately branded as not loving India the way that I've been branded not loving America and told to go back to where you come from. So there's lots and lots of parallels there, but it is unfortunately uh, scary to see what is going on in India. Because I because also it does offer a different model of pluralism. It really does. But it's it's very much in peril. Well it's a it's also a portent of what might happen in in America. And that's that's what I wanna wanna get at. There are obviously many things that distinguish Hinduism from Christianity. One of the most profound in my experience though is this Christian persecution complex. And obviously that's foundational. That's how the religion started, right? Um, But you see it gaining such momentum in America today, this idea which is shouted from the pulpit in megachurches and by leading supposedly Christian politicians that their faith our faith, uh, I grew up Christian, is is under attack. And this persecution complex is just, it's not only weird to me when coming from a majority entrenched, powerful demographic, it's really dangerous. Yeah, it is, right? And it, it does something, the foundation of it is something real, right? Are Christians discriminated against in this country from time to time? Yeah. I will say particularly in academia, in universities and colleges, that to be Christian it can be looked down upon, to be religion of any religious of any kind, but particularly Christian, let's be clear. But you can be discriminated against, you can have personally faced discrimination, and at the same time, you have to be able to see the way society has been built for Christians. Um, Now, that is, if I'm speaking to somebody who is open-minded, the folks that you're referring to, I mean, they have an agenda. They want to take something that's real and then twist it for their use. And the question is, I wrote this book, and the majority of the way or place I spend my energies Ken is talking to folks who are willing to consider the possibilities. I'm not interested in putting forth my energy to try to convince somebody who lives by the word of the pastor that you are potentially describing. They're not going to hear me, but you know what? They might listen to you. They might listen to you. And so you have such an important role. And it's really actually one of the reasons why I was like, yes, I would love to be on here because I can write this book. I can write 20 other books. I can have these conversations um, perhaps into my next lifetime. And I might do that. But it will take someone like you having these conversations with folks to really help us make change. When you see people like, the former president, 
Donald Trump and his acolytes making the Christian nationalist argument, making the case that they are they are defending Christianity the same way <laughs> they say Vladimir Putin is defending Christianity. How do you react as a scholar, as a person who has studied the religious history of Christianity and apply it to this incredibly cynical moment we're in now? Well, what it really, where I get very angry as a scholar is, again, we're, if we had more people know the religious history of this country, the real, true religious history of this country, we wouldn't have so many people just following the former president. And so that's why we've got to do something about our education system. We have got to talk about religion in schools, not prayer, not devotional reading, but religion. So I'm a huge advocate. Sometimes it surprises people, but I am a huge advocate of religion in public schools. We've got to teach it. You can legally have a a high school clash on the Bible as literature. I have no problem with that. What I would like to see is religious texts in a world religious, in a world literature class, right? That's one of the things we've, we've got to do. I will say also, as a scholar and as a everyday American, it infuriates me the way that the former president and those who follow him have twisted Christianity. It absolutely infuriates me. Every religion, if you will, in everyday speak, has good and every religion has bad. And it really does bother me. I mean, Christianity has been also the foundation for social justice. You know, it has provided people solace when there was nothing else. And that gets overshadowed, right? Or that's not even talked about at all, which is one of the reasons why, you know, we've got to kind of change the discussion. Um, We've got to reclaim what are the moral questions in our country. How do you explain the rise of this militant brand of Christianity that that recasts Jesus, <laughs> the the inventor of Christianity. Someone's going to get really mad at me for for phrasing it that way, but that recasts Jesus not as someone interested in in social justice and and equality, but as a warrior prophet. If we can find it, I really want to insert in here a clip from the Stronger Men's Conference in Kansas City, Missouri, where Josh Hawley launched his book about manhood that, you know, featured a bunch of evangelists and opened with a tank crushing cars driven by either a Jesus or Chuck Norris lookalike, literally shooting Uzis into the air with flamethrowers going off to the side. How did we get to this moment where where Jesus and Trump are conflated and they're both they're both holding guns and vanquishing their enemies. Right. (laughs) Well, I think it's two big forces. Number one, the change of demographics in this country that we can trace back to the Immigration Act of 1965. 
the Immigration and Nationality Act, which opened our doors. Our immigration doors had effectively been shut between 1924 and 1965. I, When I'm teaching about this to my students, I always say Lady Liberty's torch should have been put behind her back between 1924 and 65. There were a few groups that were allowed in. There were a few exceptions. But for the most part, the doors were shut. In 65, President Johnson signed the act into law saying uh, that every nation in the country, uh, every nation in the world could send people to the United States. And that what the quotas that had been established in 1920s, he said, was not okay. And they were wrong. And this was a way to remedy that. He also said in his speech at the signing that, you know what, we don't think this law is really going to do a whole lot, but it's the right thing to do. Well, let me tell you something, Ken. (laughs) They had no idea. He and the Congress had no idea how that law would literally change the complexion of this country. And so you not only had people from all over the world coming, but then in 1967, you have the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia that finally said people of color and white folks can marry. So then that happened. In 64, we had been given civil rights. Can we just asterisk that that was unbelievably recently in American history (laughs) that people who loved each other were actually allowed to marry? There's great film on that for those who are, are interested, but the case itself is unbelievably compelling and far too recent. Yes. And there is um, actually, I will say there are all kinds of books, including children's books on it. And uh, it's a wonderful story, a wonderful story of Richard and Mildred Loving. But all of these things that happened in the 60s, you know, it usually takes us a generation to see the fruits of legislation passed. And so we really started seeing a change of demographics because of people coming to this country and then people becoming citizens and then sponsoring relatives. I mean, this is my story. Uh, My parents and I immigrated because of the Immigration Act of 65. And so I think those who were here, let's say white Christian America and specific section of white Christian America, were not ready for this change of demographics. And the second thing is the election of President Obama. I think it was just too much for parts of this country to put their faith in the leader who was a Black man. They just couldn't do it. It was just beyond reality for them. And uh, and then the former president had been stirring the pot ever since uh President Obama was in office from the get-go, the whole birther movement and him, you know, saying, wait a minute, where was President Obama born? And I don't think he was born in Hawaii. And by the way, look at who his father is. Oh, and then wait a minute, he lived in Southeast Asia. (laughs) You know, Uh, this was too much. I mean, he, he put, he brought all these threads together and it was too much for people to be like, no, there's no way this guy could be president, right? And so it was a concerted effort to delegitimize him from the very beginning. So the two the two factors, the changing complexion of this country along with the election of Barack Obama. Right. We're teasing out a, I think, a fascinating intersection and I want to be explicit about it 
when I see the Republican Party today, at least elements of the Republican Party, dominant elements, deploying Christianity as a way to answer this terrifying increase in racial diversity that the country is experiencing. Uh, I'm projecting terrifying on them. I think America is much better for it. But the same reaction and the motivations that prompt that reaction among whites who are afraid that the country is is not going to look like what it did pre-1965 seems to be animating Christians to react in the same way. And those threads are intersecting. They're feeding off of each other. And you've talked about religion and the or Christianity and the construction of whiteness. And I think it all comes together in this political moment. Yeah. I mean, I think what we have to understand is that, you know, if somebody, this can go back to thinking about it. If you have a five-year-old child and this child is playing with this toy and then all of a sudden that toy is taken away, the child is upset. This is their toy. This is what they like. This is a little bit of what has happened in the United States with Christians and the increasing racial, ethnic, and religious diversity and the way that schools and local townships have dealt with things. For example, you know, every December, there's always a story. You know, well, we had the nativity, right? We had the crash up uh, at City Hall, you know, and now, oh, well, we used to do it. It was part of tradition, but now we're no longer allowed to do it because um, the Jewish population complained or the Hindu population is saying, wait a minute, but we also need to do this. And unfortunately, those in power also didn't get religion when they were growing up because of it was learning about religion has not been part of public education for the most part. And so what is the answer? With increasing religious diversity, let's not talk about religion. Let's take religion away. And so... On a certain level, those who are white and Christian who've been in this country for generations are like, wait a minute, our toys, and I don't mean to, you know, make an analogy. I mean, toys are very important to kids. Religion is very important to kids. I'm not trying to trivialize religion here. I want to make that clear. But this idea of something important to you being taken away and then how you feel about that is what's really at the heart of what's going on. And then a certain segment of the Republican Party is drawing on that fear. And they're doing it. They're very good at it. They're very, very good at it. And they're drawing on that fear that who I am and what I am and what I believe in is being taken away. And it's been being given to other folks. Is it really being taken away, though? Can we... Can we address the foundational premise of this persecution argument, of this grievance? Every time I hear the the war on Christmas refrain around the holidays, I roll my eyes because I just, I can't get away from the candy canes and the Christmas trees and everything else. That argument, argument I think, is, is being deployed cynically. I, I guess I want you to address that first and then would love your insight into what the public square should look like. Because I, you know, I think there is a place for the nativity there. There's also a place for the menorah and everything else. But let's tackle the one thing at a time. Is the toy really being taken away? So let's go with one specific piece of Christmas. Um, and it's the use of Merry Christmas 
versus happy holidays, right? And so, um, because I think that's a rallying cry. You know, I see all the stickers, right? And on cars, put the Christ back in Christmas. And I don't blame them. I I think that the commercialization of Christmas, the whole issue of commodification of gifts, I mean, that's part of our capitalist society, unfortunately, right? And that has taken away some of the sacred peace for those who believe and for those who, who celebrate Christmas um, in a spiritual way, um, as different than a cultural way. But that's not government, and it's certainly not minority religions tearing down nativity scenes. No, but it is, again, a place where folks can get a handle on and say, hey, we used to say Merry Christmas, and now, because of these people, we're having to say Happy Holidays. And that does not convey the same as a Merry Christmas. And I'm here to say I agree with them. I am in favor of saying Merry Christmas. And part of the fear people have around saying it is, oh my God, they don't want to offend somebody. Okay, I'm not talking about the person at the Gap, you know, saying Merry Christmas to people and trying to figure it out. But people in your life, in your kind of primary social circle, your colleagues at work, like we should have a sense of who they are, what they believe. I should be able to know that my dean is a Christian and I can wish her a Merry Christmas. I should know also if my associate dean is Jewish and I don't wish her a Merry Christmas. But we have forgotten that and we don't go there. And what I'm saying is we need to go there. I am an advocate of saying Merry Christmas. And that means you need to know when to wish me a happy Diwali. You need to know when Yom Kippur is and to know not to say have a happy Yom Kippur because it is a solemn day of commemoration, right? So these are the basics. There is going to be, we need religious literacy. We need religious literacy. So the answer to, hey, well, no, we're not talking about Christmas. We're calling it happy holidays. Oh, there used to be a Christmas party, but now it's a holiday party. You know, so people feel their religion is not taken seriously. So the answer to increasing religious diversity is not less religion, because we have ample data that shows that isn't working. We do. We see it. <laughs> we see it everywhere around us. All right. Last question, a practical one. What should our town public square look like? That's a really good question. The town square needs to be intentionally created, if you will, so that it brings in the faiths and none <laughs> of the communities that it represents. So that's the first place to start is that people should see themselves reflected in their community. And so I'm not saying that that means just because there might be a church near the town square that all of a sudden you need to erect a Hindu temple there. But there have been times where temples and mosques have been tried, uh, you know, communities have tried to uh, build them and then folks say, no, that's not okay right? We need to allow for these structures in our communities. We need to say, how can we, we would like to have a crush and what should we do so that our other communities feel represented? So one of the things they can do is have 
a diva lighting ceremony, which a lot of towns across the country have started doing during Diwali, right? Everything doesn't need to happen in December. Let's be clear, not the world's religious holidays happen in December. And in fact, if you're trying to put everything into December, it's still the Christianization of these holidays, right? So let's commemorate and celebrate when they happen, which then also means having the nativity out in December. What's glaringly obvious to me is that that approach makes life richer and more interesting and and doesn't infringe on anyone's freedoms. And I think the reaction from those who say that that is an infringement tells you everything you need to know about them. I'm afraid we're going to see a lot of that in 2024. But, you know, I want to live in in a world where every few weeks there's there's another event at the public town square exposing us to the diversity in our communities. Yeah, and I think as long as you keep working for it and I keep working for it and your listeners do what they can, we can succeed, but we have our work cut out for us. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. That was a lot of fun. We should meet up again around the holidays. I would love to check back in with you. Sounds good. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Kathy for joining me. Make sure to check out her book, White Christian Privilege. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.